0: going to be looking at another passage and focusing on God's mission as he sends out his gospel through the book of Romans. If you have a Bible at home, it would be really wonderful if you could turn to it right now. We're going to be looking at Romans chapter one from verse 16 to 17, but we're going to read the whole second half of the chapter. The great thing about us being on live stream is that if you want, if your Bible's on the far side of the room, you can pause now if you want and go grab it and bring it back We're going to look at Romans chapter 1, verses 16, down to the end of the chapter. For I am not ashamed of the gospel, for it is the power of God for salvation to everyone who believes, to the Jew first and also to the Greek. For in it, the righteousness of God is revealed from faith for faith. As it is written, the righteous shall live by faith. and worshiped and served creature rather than creator, who is blessed forever. Amen. This is the word of the Lord. The reason why I thought we'd read this passage in particular is that the apostle Paul, who's writing this letter to the church in Rome, is in a sort of similar situation to the one that we are gonna be in on Sunday. Paul is about to head off on a new missionary journey, probably to Spain. And as he sends out on this journey, he he wants to get in touch with the church in Rome. He wants to get in touch with them, firstly, to to try and gain a bit of support for the trip that he's about to go on, both prayerfully, and also to try and drum up some more of a collection from the church in Jerusalem who are being heavily persecuted and are struggling. And so in that context of, of sending out and going out into the world, Paul is trying to demonstrate and show to the Christians in Rome the great value in the message that Christians have in the gospel. And so he says these famous words from the letter, I am not ashamed of the gospel, for it is the power of God for salvation to everyone who believes. The fact that Paul has to say, I am not ashamed of the gospel, implies that there is some pressure that he might want to feel ashamed of it. It's a pressure that we are probably quite familiar with today, where sometimes we can feel the pressure to be ashamed about what we believe. Whenever Paul writes this letter into Rome, he is writing to what is the cultural hub of the ancient world, Rome was the center of an empire that would be one of the largest and longest lasting civilizations that this world has ever seen. It was powerful. It was intellectually renowned. It had a great deal of influence. It was culturally significant. It was the center for power in the whole ancient world. And Christianity in that context in the face of a giant empire like Rome, was seen as something quite small and silly. We read in Paul's other letter to 1 Corinthians that the gospel of Jesus dying on the cross seemed a stumbling block to the Jews and foolishness to the Gentiles. And what he meant by that was that in the ancient world, much like our own, there was pressures from the wider society to look on Christianity and sneer. For Jewish people in the ancient world, Christianity was seen as a strange offshoot. They looked at Christians with suspicion as people who followed a disgraced rabbi called Jesus and went and followed his teachings that were summarized called the way. And they looked at it as a weird sect, a stumbling block because how could God ever send somebody like Jesus? Jesus did not accomplish the great political goals the Jews wanted. Jesus died a unholy death upon a cross. Jesus was not the sort of Messiah the Jews had expected. And so it was a stumbling block. And to the Gentile believers, to the Greek believers, to the philosophers of the age, they looked at the gospel and they thought, Oh, how quaint. They thought it was simple, like a lovely little story that lacked the complexities and the nuance and the philosophical sophistication that they wanted to have in their worldview. The gospel seemed silly. And I think that's why it's important that we look at this passage today. That idea that people might sneer at the gospel is not one that is alien to us. And so... As we look at it this morning, I want us to look at all the different ways that Paul is dealing with those who are doubting the gospel. We're gonna see how there's people who are doubting its righteousness, people who are doubting its truthfulness, and people who are doubting its power. So the first thing we're gonna see is doubting its righteousness, doubting the gospel's righteousness. In the ancient world, they heard the gospel of Jesus, that. Uh, that God had sent his one and only son, that God had become man and died on a cross on behalf of, so that he might pay for the sins of all of those who believe in him. That might sound great to many of us who are Christians, but in the ancient world, that was seen as something that is not just bad, but thoroughly unrighteous. In the ancient world, the the Platonic philosophers at the time had a very, very high view of what they thought of as the God or gods. God was so far removed up there somewhere else that was more important, more special. How on earth could a God come down as Jesus did and become man? It it didn't quite seem to make sense because how on earth would a God sully himself by entering into the human world with all of its problems and all of its sickness and all of its pains? It seemed like how could a God who was really God still keep himself far away and yet come so close at the same time? And so they looked at the idea of Jesus, the idea that God became man as something that was almost offensive to them because it ran against how they could ever think God could work in the world. God was somewhere out there. He could never come close. This is quite similar actually to the work that uh, AWM do. In the Islamic world, they also have a very transcendent view of God. Uh, They would emphasize that God is one and that nothing can corrupt the oneness of God. I used to work for a church on the Shankill Road. And whenever I was there, I met frequently with a Muslim evangelist um, because we ran an outreach from the church I was in. And Abid would show up with a little wheeled trolley bag full of Qur'ans every week for us, and all give us a Koran or study Qur'an's. And I've he even gave me a Quran in Arabic. And he would debate with us for hours and hours on end. You would sit down, and I kid you not, you would be there for three hours straight. Abid even came to church, and whenever he came, he would sit beside me. And whenever we read things uh, like Deuteronomy that says, Hear, O Israel, the Lord your God is one. Abid would give me a wee dig in the ribs. Whenever, I, whenever there was passages about Jesus being the son of God, I would give him a wee dig. But for him, the idea that God would come down in Jesus wasn't just strange. It was actually offensive. I remember we would sit at a little table in the coffee area in the church. Abid would have his Quran open. I would have the Bible open. And we would tr- I would try to talk about what he thought about Jesus' crucifixion. And as soon as I said that God would go to the cross on behalf of sinners, he would get incredibly angry and change the discussion. The idea that God would go through that on the cross corrupted his view of God as perfect, transcendent and other and up there He couldn't understand how a righteous God could stoop down and give up the glories of heaven, exchanging the crown of glory for a crown of thorns, and paying a death that we could never pay. It wasn't just strange to him. It was offensive. It was unrighteous, and he couldn't believe it. And it is something like that that Paul is dealing with whenever he is trying to defend the gospel as revealing the righteousness of God. Because whilst it may go against everything that they thought in the ancient world, God's righteousness is revealed even in greater clarity and beauty through Jesus on the cross. And yet I imagine if we begin to talk about the gospel today, people reject it for a whole different reason. In our culture today, they think the gospel is not righteous, not because God is far up and removed, but because they think that how could a God who is loving and forgiving send Jesus to die for people? Why would he ever need to do that? If God is so forgiving, why can he not just forgive our sins and forget about them? Live and let live, forgive and forget, put it aside, it's all in the past. Why can God not let it go? C.S. Lewis in his book, Mere Christianity, makes a really helpful point, which he says at this point, it's really helpful for us to think about sin not as necessarily trespasses as we often talk about it, the idea of breaking a rule, but as debt. If you actually read through the Lord's Prayer in your modern translations, most of them will translate the Greek word that's used there, debt now rather than trespasses, because it conveys something about sin that trespass didn't really quite get at. Because debts, debts always need to be paid. And if you don't pay it, somebody else is footing the bill. And in the words of C.S. Lewis, in the gospel, Jesus is footing the bill. We have all done something wrong. We have all transgressed. We have all sinned. And rather than us footing the bill, Jesus foots the bill for us. We see that there is something wonderful about this gospel as it shows God's righteousness, who is still trying to uphold justice and truth and righteousness, but will do it in such a glorious and wonderful way that he will foot the bill himself by sending his only son. This is the great righteousness of the gospel that Paul is driving at here. And this is why he says that the gospel is the revealing of the righteousness of God. If that's how we can doubt the righteousness of the gospel, we can also doubt the truth of the gospel. I'd said at the start of the sermon that in the ancient world, they viewed the gospel as silly. And that is, I think, why Paul writes in verse 16, for I am not ashamed of the gospel because there is an implication there that there was a sense of shame around it. There was a sense that the gospel didn't seem quite as sophisticated or as wonderful as the philosophy of the world around them. In the ancient world, the high philosophy of the philosophers in Greek or in Greece or Rome was really seemed as the pinnacle of human reason and thought. And the gospel that was being believed by slaves, by people who were not culturally accepted, it seemed a little bit silly and simplistic. It didn't seem to have the beauty or, as they would argue, the sophistication of the philosophies at the time. And I think in that we can see something that beats in the heart of all of us, which is we live in a world where we are pressured into feeling ashamed of the gospel because and maybe perhaps you're listening at home being forced by a family member to think this as well, that the gospel is something silly that we ought to be ashamed of, something simplistic and something that lacks any intellectual pedigree. And I think that's one of the greatest disservices we have done to the gospel for a long time within the church. We have shied away from actually the intellectual prowess and power of the gospel. Because in the gospel, there are a great deal of many things that are a big pill to swallow, but whenever we begin to enter and entertain the idea that actually some of this might be true, it can change us entirely. There has often been debates around the resurrection of Jesus that's really the cornerstone of what Christianity is about. Paul will write in his letters to the Corinthians that if the resurrection isn't true, Christians are to be pitied above everything else. And yet in all the historical attempts to disprove the resurrection, to find proof against it, it has never garnered any sufficient proof. In all the attempts to try and empirically disprove any statement of the gospel, it has never quite worked. There is something really powerful about the gospel in this way. The gospel is sophisticated and as wonderful as any other worldview we might believe, but it requires us to follow, swallow a big pill at the start, which is to admit that we are weak and frail people and we are not the rational autonomous people that we would love ourselves to be. Because what we want to think we do is that we sit with all the evidence and we weigh up what we think is right and what we think is wrong, and we come to a rational conclusion at the end of it. However, that's not what we do. Sure, it's not. Whenever you're in a meeting and somebody disagrees with you, a little reason why you will then argue against them is not because you think they'll have a better point, but because your feelings are hurt. Or maybe the reason why you don't believe in something or don't believe in the gospel is because right from the offset, you've told yourself, "Ah, oh, that's a pile of old rubbish and none of it can be true. And so you never actually look at the evidences for it with plain and un, uh, unpatronizing eyes. If we were to look at this, with all of our prejudices set aside, we might actually find something that is radically radically truthful and something that has the power to change us, we are not as rational or as objective as we would ever like to think. The atheist, uh, Terry Eagleton, who taught at Oxford and later at Manchester University, I think he's retired now, he wrote this in one of his books. He said, an enlightened trust in the sovereignty of human reason can be every bit as magical as the exploits of Merlin, and a faith in our capacity for limitless self-improvement just as much wide-eyed superstition as a faith in leprechauns. Are we trusting in our own rational faculties with the sort of religious belief that we accuse Christians for having? Why not look at this for yourself and see if it's true? Finally, we see that there is those who doubt the power of God in the gospel. Paul says his reason for believing in the gospel, that it is the power for salvation to everyone who believes, to the Jews first and also to the Greeks. Do we really believe as Christians that the gospel has power? We all will automatically say yes, no doubt. We will all automatically say, well, of course I believe the gospel. That's how I became a Christian. That's how I've entered into the faith. And yet I wonder whenever push comes to shove, is that actually how we act? Whenever we start a kids ministry or whenever we work with our kids or to try to deal with faith things with our children, do we think that the gospel has the power onto salvation or do we think it will bore them and so we try and entertain them? Whenever we try to reach out to our non-Christian friends and family members, do we invite them along to a church service? Do we invite them along to somewhere where they might hear a lecture on Christianity? Or do we think, oh no, that will be far too heavy and burdensome on them. Far better they go to a barbecue or a football night instead. Whenever somebody begins to talk about what they believe in work, do we hang back from saying the gospel that we believe in? because we think, oh, it's far better that we just get through the day. Do we really believe the gospel we, we have is the power onto salvation? Or do we act a little bit ashamed of it? Do we act slightly trying to keep it out of view because we think it will bore people or put people off when really it is the only thing we ought to be about? Now, obviously there are, we take this with a pinch of salt and there's wisdom to be exercised in how we engage folk with the gospel. And often, you know, things like church barbecues and uh, making kids sit through a three-hour lecture. You know, there are ways that we need to actually think about this in a wise way, but it's important for us to actually examine our motives. And is our heart really believing that the gospel is the power or is it something we need to make excuses for? Because the gospel we believe in is the gospel that saved us. The gospel of Jesus Christ, dead, buried, and raised again for forgiveness of sins, is the power of God. And it has shaped the world around us for 2000 years. It is still bringing people to faith today It has not changed since you were saved and it will not change whenever your great, great, great grandchildren or their friends are saved. It is the power that drives us as a people in the church. So do we act like it? Is that what we think the most important thing about church life is? Do we think it's about sending out the gospel into the world? or is it about entertaining people and making them nice? The gospel is the power of God for salvation to everyone who believes. As we're sending out missionaries this Sunday, can I encourage you? Trust in the power of this gospel. And as you go out from here, realize that you are as much a missionary of it too. Trust in its power, and its ability to change people. Because really, without the gospel, what we do is meaningless. Let's pray. Father, we thank you for the good news of the gospel and that it is the power unto salvation. Lord, would we trust in you and its in its ability to save. God, help us not to be ashamed, but be bold with it. For we know that it is your righteousness being revealed to man